If you'll take your Bibles and open with me to Psalm chapter 22, we'll continue our brief series on lament, Psalm 22. As you find your way there, if you permit me to pray for us one more time. Father, our desire is that you would minister to the needs of our hearts. You know them far better than we do. We sense that there are griefs and sorrows that may lie deep beneath the surface. And we want you to minister to the very core of our being. So, Father, work in our hearts tonight. Minister to us through your word and by the ministry of your spirit. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, I know it's been a few weeks since we last met, but if you've been able to join us recently, uh, you should know that we've taken up this brief little series on this theme of lament, of Christian lament. And we've sort of been asking this question, how is it as Christians, are we supposed to cry? And what I mean by that is, how do we... When we have a life that hurts, when we experience sorrows and pains, what do we do with those things? We live in a world that is both incredibly glorious, so there's lots of things we value, and everything is turning to dust, so there's lots of loss. All the good things that we enjoy will be lost in some way. And so we experience this effect of the fall. And rather than ignoring our loss or pretending like it doesn't hurt, we've identified this pattern in the Bible where God invites his people not to merely just shake their fists at the air and complain or despair, but to direct our griefs to him. We see people making laments to God. What is a lament? Well, you remember that a lament is simply a cry. It's a, it's a howl of sorrow. It's a passionate expression of grief or sadness. And we've pushed that definition a little further to give a fuller picture of Christian lament, which is a prayer that ends in trust. It's a prayer in pain that leads to trust. It has both elements. It's an honest expression of pain and it's an honest expression of faith. It is not just one or the other. It is both. Where we honestly voice our pain and our concerns and our sorrows and our doubts to God, we do it because we know that he is sovereign and that he's redeeming the world. And even though lament can be dark, it can be a dark expression of grief, Christian lament is never hopeless. No Christian can ever be truly hopeless. It is, not, it is not possible. And lament is no different because lament is in fact a prayer. And prayer is directed to God. And since it's directed to God and God is who God says he is, it's full of hope. Lament helps us as Christians to process our sorrows and our griefs and even our disappointments. Not just big things, it's certainly true, but the small things. To process them in a way 
that is true to our experience, that, are, that is authentic, but it doesn't let our problems dominate our lives. That can be really hard, isn't it? If you've experienced grief, right, if you've lost someone close to you, you know how that can be overwhelming, where that becomes the dominant reality of your life. Well, that is not God's intention for us. Since we're praying, we are actively remembering and trusting that our God is there and that he rules and he is sovereign over our world, though it is full of sorrows. We've said this before, and I'd like to reiterate that the way I'm talking about lament is really more of a process. It's more of a journey. It's, it's, it's a movement of our hearts from the difficulties that we experience in life that ends in trusting God. It's a movement from fear to faith, from despair to joy. We've identified four elements of lament. We've mentioned these before from uh, Mark Rorgop. And he mentions these four. Just remember these. Keep these in mind. That first, we turn to God in prayer. Right? It's a prayer. Second, we pour our hearts out to the Lord. We complain. We talked about that last time. Then we make our requests. We ask. And then we trust. We pray we complain, we request, and we trust. Tonight, we're going to focus our attention on these last two elements, the asking and the trusting. And to do this, I'd like to direct your attention to Psalm 22, where we will see that we are called to number one. Okay, but just say, in preaching class, they teach you to do alliteration. I don't do that very often. I think it is often, Mark doesn't do it that much either. We think... <laughs> Maybe I should just say, I think. It's silly. <laughs> it doesn't help me remember. But tonight, I have alliteration. It's, it's mostly accidental. Okay. Number one, <laughs> sorry if you alliterate your sermon this Sunday, Mark. Ask with audacity. If this helps you remember, great. Ask with audacity. And number two, trust totally. Let's read Psalm 22, just a portion. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far off from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you don't answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. And you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you I was cast from my birth and from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there's none to help. This is God's word. It's a powerful, honest psalm, isn't it? You know, our Lord quoted this in his great moment 
of agony, but this is an experience that David lived. And the first thing I want you to notice about this text is there's a pattern of asking. It's a pattern of asking. There's many instances of this, but you see three of them just there in verse 1. Look at it with me. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Again, why are you so far from saving me? And then implied, why aren't you listening to the words of my groaning? Why, why, why? I'd like to also point out the inscription that is here at the top of the psalm. You'll notice that it's a psalm written by David, but it had others in mind. You see that word there, to the choir master? Right? It's, it's that David recognized that he was not the only one who needed words like these. That all of us, even corporately, need to express that we feel forsaken by God at times. And so David offers this audacious psalm to be used by others who may even collectively ask God, why have you forsaken us together? But there's many other questions that are built into this text. Some are explicit, but many are assumed and lie hidden beneath the text. Like look there in verse 2. Oh God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. And by night, I find no rest. Do you hear the question behind the text? It's really a complaint. I'm crying, but you're not answering. I'm doing this continually, but I still have no peace. And so what's his question? Why? Why? Why aren't you answering? Why aren't you giving me rest? We'll consider this more in a moment. But first, I want to think about what goes on when Christians ask. We'll come in a minute to the specific requests that David makes. But first, I want you to turn over to Luke chapter 11. Luke 11. Keep your finger in Psalm 22. We'll be, we'll be back. But in Luke 11, Jesus is he's teaching his disciples about prayer. And after teaching them what we know as the Lord's Prayer in the first part of the chapter, he continues to give some additional commentary on how and why we should pray. Let's start reading in verse 5. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me, my door is shut, my children are in bed with me. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give you anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find, knock and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if he asks, if his son asks for a fish, will instead give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will he give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, if you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? Will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Okay, this is an inc- I think this is an incredible text 
<laughs> this, this is a remarkable teaching on prayer. Jesus asks for his disciples, it's a parable of sorts, he, he asks for them to imagine a scenario where someone comes to their house at midnight and inconveniences them for an, with an annoying request. I had some company come in and we need some food, right? If you have company come in and you need food, do not come to my house. Go to Mark's house, right? Or go to the grocery store, get your own food, right? Like we, I mean, he's like, hey, I'm already in bed, right? The kids are down, right? And, and Jesus is saying, he's not going to answer, he's not going to, he's not going to help you because he's your friend, primarily. Did you catch that? He's not going to answer because of the existing relationship. Instead, he's going to answer because you're annoying, right? Because of your audacity, because of your shamelessness, because of your impudence. What else could Jesus possibly be teaching but to encourage us to ask with audacity? To ask with boldness. Jesus wants us. I heard one preacher say it a long time ago. Wake him up in the middle of the night and ask him for a cup of water. <laughs> uh, you know, I have, I have small kids. And we're moving past a lot of the midnight, middle of the night stuff. Not all of it, but most, most of it. And, and, you know, the middle of the night can be a pretty active time. If you have small kids. And my girls have learned... That Roman is, he can't get out of bed yet. We haven't, we haven't pulled the trigger on that. But the girls can get out of bed and they have learned that if they need something in the middle of the night, don't bother with dad. <laughs> He's asleep. Mom's asleep too, but she can be woken up. Dad, you have to hit him with a bat or, you know, say something about Duke and then he'll wake up and, you know, some of that. But, you know, there have been times where, but there have been times where my name is called and my kids genuinely needed something. And so, you know, it's, it's easy to wake up and help when I know that there's a real need, right? When a child is throwing up, I'm awake, right? That, you know, that's how... But then there's other times where the kids, their need isn't what you would call important. Those are the hard times to wake up. I remember one time, I won't tell you who, you can probably guess, when one of my daughters woke me up and said, <laughs> I don't know why they, they couldn't get Haley, but she said, Daddy, I need to go potty. And I was like, okay, go. <laughs> and she said, will you come sit with me? <laughs> What do you think I did? Yeah, of course I went and, and sat, you know, of course I went and sat with her and talked with her and heard what she was thinking about for 45 seconds. And, but, you know, she wasn't afraid to ask. Well, that's a ridiculous request, uh, you know, to, to come sit with me for 45 seconds. But I got up. Why? Because she asked. She's my daughter, right? What else am I, of course I'm going to get up. You see, unlike me, Jesus loves our bold requests. He encourages us to ask without shame, to ask for extravagant things. Heal this disease. Save my marriage. Save my pagan neighbor. Open this door for a new job. Help my child get established. Whatever it is. I mean, th that's the point of this parable to ask for these things in extravagant ways. But notice something else about this teaching. Verse 11, we read about the character of the father, right? What kind of father, if his son asks for a fish, will instead give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, give him a scorpion? If you who are evil, if you know how to give good gifts, 
How much more will your heavenly Father, who is not evil, give you good things, give you the Spirit? So for, Jesus has said, ask boldly, but now he's saying, you need to know and understand the character of your Father. If you understand his character, that's going to prompt you to ask boldly. Ask because of what God is like. When we pray, we pray to the generous, gracious, good, with the good character of God in view. We take all of his qualities, all of his attributes, and we set them out before us. And if we understood how extravagant his mercy was, we would not be afraid to ask for, for extravagant things. If you believe that God is good, then you will expect good things. Even if he says no. Do you see? If you believe that he's good, you're going to expect good things from him. Doesn't that follow? Since his character is gracious, how should you expect him to be towards you? Gracious. <laughs> so when you pray, is it not fitting to ask for his grace? To ask for his favor, to expect it. Don't you see how this works? The bigger your God is, the more you will ask of him. Big theology begats big prayers. Big theology begats big prayers. But so often we don't do this. This can go wrong in so many ways. I was just reflecting about how this has gone wrong in my life and... I think there's a lot more, but sometimes we just sort of assume the answer is no. Right? You ever do that? You, 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 I need to pray. I need to pray about this, but God's not going to do it. Right? You just kind of assume it's no. Does anyone else struggle with that besides me? Right? What is wrong with that? I'm just like assuming that God isn't going to be good. Right? It, 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 just because he says no, that doesn't mean he's not good, but I'm just assuming that I know what he's going to do, and so I just, eh, right? There's a problem there. Or what about this? Sometimes, this is worse, sometimes we assume that God doesn't want to give us good things because he isn't giving us what we think is good. For years, I've struggled with this weird problem. I, I, when something good would happen to me, I would sort of be afraid because I was afraid that either, number one, God was going to take it from me, or number two, he was going to have to even it out with something bad. You ever dealt with that? Something good, a bunch of good stuff's happened. Something, you know, better be on the lookout, right? Because in my mind, I was assuming that God's character was bad, that he was going to make me suffer. It's because I doubted the goodness of God. Jesus' point is, my goodness, if human fathers who are evil, if they know how to give good gifts... How much more should you expect from God, your Heavenly Father? I mean, for those of you who are fathers or parents, or we can all imagine, we know what it's like to give good gifts to those we love. You're evil, right? What about God? How much more does God love to give good things to those he loves? Friends, here's the big thing. God wants you to ask because of his character. He wants you to ask because of his character, not because of your character, right? So we don't go saying, hey, I did this great thing, so now would you do such and such, right? That, that, no, not with our character in view. In fact, it's actually quite the opposite. We ask with his character in view. 
So our prayers can go something like this. Lord, I know I don't deserve anything good from you. But I also know that you're a merciful God. So please provide this new job for my family. Please come through in this situation. Not because I don't deserve it. In fact, I don't deserve it. And if you say no, it makes total sense, right? I don't deserve good things. But I know that you are good. Show me your goodness in this way. Don't you, don't you see how this works? When we pray in light of God's character, we're actually honoring God's character. Right? When you pray in light of his character, you're actually honoring his, honoring his character. Asking is an honor. Just over Thanksgiving, I did, uh, went home for Thanksgiving and went over to my parents' house and did what everybody does on Thanksgiving. Went to Walmart with my dad to buy a basketball. <laughs> He's like, hey, let's go to Walmart. I was like, there's food here. Let's just stay. We went to Walmart, and, and I was actually on the phone with my wife talking. I think we were trying to buy medicine or something. And, and, and this very short lady interrupted me uh, while I was on the phone and asked me to get some pineapples off the top shelf for her. I was like, honey, I got to go. I'm needed, right? Hang up the phone. Re- <laughs> yes, or anything else you need? <laughs> you know, right? Her asking honored my tallness, right? Which in that moment was useful. It's not useful in airplanes or buses or most other places. But it was really useful, you know, at Walmart because we know there's so much help at Walmart. But, but her request honored my tallness. And that's what our prayers do to God. Honor his goodness. Honor his grace. When we appeal to his strength, to his wisdom, to his mercy, we are honoring him. Our prayers are a very tangible song of praise. We ask him because we know he can do it. I do not ask my son to get things off the top shelf. I don't even bother. Why? He's three feet tall. Maybe. Right? He tips over easily. (laughs) Right? I I don't do that. It's, It's useless. But God, what can God not do? So what should I not ask of him? Right? We honor him. His strength is unmatched. His goodness is beyond measure. His wisdom can't be calculated. And since our Father has all these attributes, would we not be arrogant fools not to ask of his boundless resources? I remember when I was in high school, I worked at Chick-fil-A. It's a great job. And... Uh, there's there's a there's a short girl who is reaching to get some styrofoam cups off the top shelf, and I was six foot four in in tenth grade, and so I did. The, I just walked up and pulled them down, and she lit into me. She said, "I'm an independent woman. I don't need your help getting these cups off the shelf." And so I put them back up there. <laughs> right. I mean, and you know what she had to do? She had to ask someone else to get them done. Right? Like, there's a foolishness, there's a foolish pride that comes from, I don't need your resources. And when we pray, that's what we do. Is your life not full of neediness? Mine is. Audacious asking. Now, the Psalms are full of all sorts of bold requests. And I want to give you a sample of some of them. If you can flip back over to Psalm chapter 22 now. In Psalm 22, David proceeds to offer all sorts of requests. I didn't read it, but you can see this over at verse 19. 19 through 22. Flip to 22 verse 19. 
Look at some of these requests. Be not far off. In other words, come near to me. There's another one. Help me and help me quickly. Right? Those are two different prayers. Help, help now! Right? Two different prayers. Here's another one. Deliver me. Verse 20. Save me. Verse 21. Right? These are repeated all, I mean, so prayers like this are repeated all throughout the Psalms. And I hope that, that these are a part of your prayer when you are suffering. But tonight, I want to provide some more examples that are a little bit more provocative. And they're provocative because I hope they illustrate how our prayers are to be audacious. I don't know how many I have. Well, you can count. I'm five or six. I had nine, but I, whatever. Um, number one. Do something. God, do something. You could also say, fix the brokenness. Many of the lament psalms have this refrain, Arise, O Lord. Here's some examples. Psalm 3, verse 7. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. Psalm 10, verse 12. Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand, forget not the afflicted. Now, when the psalmist says, arise, O God, lift up your hand, he's not saying stand up. He's not saying stretch out. He's saying act. We act with our hands. He's asking God to do something, to get on the move. It's a plea for God. See the brokenness in our lives and then act. This may seem easy for you. For me, this is hard. I think about theology and I think about, okay, well, this is a broken world. I mean, I should expect this. I mean, yes, there's sickness. Okay, well, I mean, I, you know, I understand that God's going to fix it one day, so I kind of need to live with this for now. That's not, yes, in God's providence, that might be part of it, but he also wants me to ask him to fix it. Change this. Fix this. Do something. It's a prayer for divine intervention in the midst of your problems. You can hear, it's, it's sort of like the request the disciples made of Jesus when he was asleep in the boat and the storm came up. Don't you care that we're perishing? Do something. Now, he rebuked them for that prayer. So, there, I think there's an element of unbelief in that prayer. So, we, we don't want to pray with unbelief. We're not charging God, you're doing something wrong because you're not doing something. Instead, we're asking him, please act. See the brokenness in my life. Do something. In faith, it's a prayer that says, Lord, I know that you're coming to make all things new. I know that is coming, but in the meantime, make this new. Do you remember what Jesus' ministry was like? He was healing people all over the place. Uh, the CBR reading, we're in Matthew right now. A few, a few days back, I just remember thinking, it said Jesus healed Everyone. Everyone. He's pushing back on the brokenness because that's not how it's supposed to be. So pray like that. He is sympathetic more than you know. Make this problem go away. Prayer number two, help me. Help me. We saw this in verse 19. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. It's really a request at the root of all prayers, isn't it? I'm in a situation, and God, I can't deal with this on my own. So help me. Help me is a request that someone only makes when they've reached the end of their rope. 
That poor girl that I was helping at Chick-fil-A had not reached the end of her very short rope, right? So she didn't want help. But once she had, she asked for help, right? You don't ask for help until you realize you can't do anything. You can't fix it. Help is a cry of of dependence. It's a cry for God to pay attention and do something that improves your situation. God wants us to ask for help. And when we do, not only are we appealing to his infinite resources, but we are teaching our hearts. Big part of prayer is teaching, right? You're teaching yourself, reminding your heart, God can be trusted. My situation does not look, if I look just at my situation, it makes me, it makes it look like there's a God that's not good, but that's not true. He can be trusted. Here's another prayer that you can pray. God, prove it. Prove it. It's one of my favorite prayers. Okay, God, prove it. Here's here's how this works. We take God's word and humbly, not arrogantly, humbly ask God to act according to his word. So, for example, uh, Psalm 25 verse 6 says, Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from old. Remember it. it. The prayer goes something like this. God, you've said you'd be merciful to me. So prove it. You see? I'm, this, is not, this is not me standing over God and saying prove it. This is me saying under him, prove it. You've said you would do this. I'm reminding my heart. You've, do, you've done it in the past. I've seen it. Prove your mercy again now. One way this shows up in the prophets and in the Psalms is through the refrain, remember your covenant. Remember your covenant of old. One example, Jeremiah 14, 21. Do not spurn us for your name's sake. Do not dishonor your glorious throne. Remember and do not break your covenant with us. It's a prayer that God would remember. That God would be faithful to his word. That he would keep his covenant. It's appealing to his faithfulness. Okay, do you need to remind God to keep his word? Is he like waiting on your reminders? No. Right? That, that's not how this functions. What this is doing is it's appealing to God's faithfulness. And what it does actually is who's it remind? <laughs> us. Right? It's reminding us and that's what these prayers do. They can activate the truth of God's word in our hearts. We can pray something like this. This is a prayer I pray frequently. Oh God, I'm terribly anxious right now. I don't quite understand why I haven't gotten that far. But right now, I'm really tempted to think and believe that you don't care about me. It's silly, I know. But that's where I am right now. But you told me that if I cast my anxieties on you, that you would give me peace that surpasses all understanding. Will you do that? I'm I'm trying to cast my anxieties on you right now, so where's the peace? You told me you care for me. Will you show me you care for me? Prove it. Lord, please do this for me. I'm the weak one. Help me. Prove it to me. Prove it. A fourth prayer you can pray. Turn them into slime. See who woke up. Turn them into slime. There's a whole category in the Psalms that are a cry for justice. And the basic pattern is something like this. God... I'm facing evil in this world. Someone has done something bad to me. 
and you're a just God, and that means you hate evil. So do something. Bring justice and punish sinners. So many of these prayers are graphic. They make you squirm, right? These are the verses that don't end up on the calendar. One example, Psalm 58, verse 8. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime. Anyone prayed that recently? It's not a political prayer, right? I mean, that is a graphic. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime, like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. He's not mincing words, is he? The psalmist is boldly complaining, there are wicked people out there, they're doing wicked things to us, God, don't let them get away with it. Not only does he pray that they would become like snails, he goes on in Psalm 58 to pray things like this, break their teeth. That's multiple times in the Psalms. God, break their teeth. He, he goes on to say, let me bathe my feet in the blood of the wicked. These are cries for justice. They are strong words, and they're strong words because we face horrific evils. Some of you, perhaps even in this room, certainly in our church, some of us have been victims of sin in horrific ways. Perhaps you've been sexually abused. These psalms are for you. Maybe you've been verbally abused. Perhaps you've been slandered. Maybe someone has hurt you physically. Maybe someone has stolen from you or accused you wrongly. These prayers are for you. Some of you have had your entire lives upended because of the sins of your parents or the sins of your spouse or the sins of your children. The Psalms show that God intends and allows and permits for us to pray graphic prayers pleading for justice. Now, it's important, you know, there's a lot of things we need to say. Preachers love caveats, and I, I don't get to do all the ones I want, but let me just say one thing, right? This, it's important to distinguish between praying for justice and you enacting your own vengeance, right? Those are, those are different things. In one scenario, God is in control, Right? You're asking God to bring justice. In the other scenario, you're the guy with the badge. Right? You think you're the one bringing justice. God is judge. We are not. It's one thing for God to bring justice to evil and punish the wicked. It's another thing altogether to pray for God to hurt people because you hate them. You see the difference? I believe you can sincerely pray for justice even for people you love. Even wanting what's best for them. And sincerely praying that. This doesn't mean that you can, can't take the way the sins other people have affected you and pour them out to the Lord. You can. Pour them out to the Lord. You can love people even when they hurt you in graphic ways and pour that out to the Lord. God calls us to love our enemies. But he also calls us to love justice. You can pray that. Turn them into slime. Break their teeth. A fifth prayer is forget my sins. This is a bold thing to ask, right? If you understand what the Bible says about God's character, it's a bold thing to pray. How can a holy God forget sin? 
Psalm 79, verse 8, Do not remember against us our former iniquities. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us. Now, many of us probably know, right? I know everyone in this room. We we know that we can ask God for our sins, forgiveness for our sins, our, our capital S sins. But what about our daily sins? What about maybe that conviction that's lurking in your heart right now that you're a little bit nervous about? Maybe you haven't quite surrendered it to the Lord. What about when the Spirit convicts us and and we are overwhelmed with the weight of our guilt? Remember the psalmist says, my sins are too numerous for me to count. They're like the numbers of hair on my head. My flesh fails me. And when you have moments like that, what about when you are overwhelmed with the weight of your guilt or when you look at your life and you see chaos and you know it's your fault? You ever had that? I remember seeing my children cry because I was angry once. Like, I did this. What do I do then? I think it's harder to ask for forgiveness in those times. Because maybe you know you deserve the bad things you're experiencing. You look at your life, you see problems and chaos, and you know you contributed to it. And you, those are hard times to ask for forgiveness, right? You feel like you should wallow in your sorrow and your sin. But the psalmist says, don't remember my sins. The psalmist says, don't hold them against me. David did this in Psalm 51. I know that he says, I know you know my transgressions, my sins ever before you, but blot them out. Blot them out. What a great prayer. Blot out my transgressions. That is an audacious thing, isn't it? To pray to a holy God who hates sin and has created hell to punish iniquity. That we would pray, blot out my transgressions. We are praying for something we absolutely do not deserve. We have no right to pray that prayer on our own. But that is the exact kind of access that Jesus Christ purchased for us on the cross. Pray, God, forgive my sins. It's the prayer of the gospel. And Christians don't pray that once. We pray it continually as we struggle with sin. That's why 1 John tells us that whenever our hearts condemn us, that we are to remember that God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. He knows your heart better than you. He knows that you're worse than you think you are. Have you ever thought about that? (laughs) You're you're, you're worse than you think you are. And guess who knows that? Besides your spouse. (laughs) God. God knows that. And guess who loves you the most? God. He knows you. He sees the depths of your heart and he loves you the same. I'm persuaded even that this is a prayer we can pray as we face the consequences of our sins. Of course, we know that there are consequences to our sins. Sometimes they last for a long time. You think God has compassion for us even as we experience the consequences of our sin? Of course he does. We can pray, God, forgive my sin, even as we experience the consequences. I think you can pray, God, I know I deserve this. I know that I caused this. Would you please take it away anyway? Not because I deserve it. I clearly don't. I deserve this. But would you take it away anyway? There are many other prayers we could pray, but I want to leave time for one very big, one very important caveat. It's really not a caveat. It's a big point. We've been talking about asking, about praying praying our sorrows, and we need to understand that Christian lament, it does not end with these requests. 
It does not end in prayer. It ends in trusting God. This is so important. So many people have turned away from the Lord because they ended in asking and not trusting. Lament is not an excuse to demand things of God. This is not a way to get on his lap and ask for what you want for Christmas. We don't demand that God forgive. We don't demand that he rescue. We don't demand that he help. We don't demand that he prove himself. We don't demand that he alleviate our circumstances. We ask. And when we're done asking, we trust. Which means God can say no, and we have to be okay with that. Because we are placing our confidence not in that God gives us what we want, but that in God does what is good, because that's who he is. Do you see the difference? Do you see which one requires more faith? God can say no. And he can say wait. And he can seem silent. And all of that is fine. Because he made the world and he is God and he made you and he knows what's best. You lost your reading glasses, right? What can you be trusted with? Our confidence is not that God will give us what we want. Our confidence is that God will give us what is good because God is good. He will give us wisdom because God is wise and so we can trust him. I remember reading the Bernstein Bears get the gimmies. Brother and sister bear have been spoiled, right? They, they live in a world of modern conveniences, and they had enjoyed toys and treats everywhere they looked, and they had stacks of candy, rides on bucking frogs, rubber toy cats, on and on and on. And spoiled by their parents' generosity, brother and sister had no problem asking or demanding treats from their parents. And the problem is, is that when mama said no... They threw themselves on the ground, put their feet in the air, started kicking and screaming. They had a case of the galloping, greedy gimmies. They didn't just ask, did they? They demanded. Friends, when we pray, we ask. We do not demand. We pray humbly, knowing God can say no, and if he does, it is good. David seemed to understand this. One last thing I want you to notice in the psalm, and we'll close. If you look, uh, look, over, look, to, look first at, um, uh, at the end of verse 2. Alright, so we have these requests, these concerns, and notice what he says, verse 3. Yet you are holy. Notice this and yet pattern. We see it again there in verse 9. He's making his complaint, verses 6, 7, and 8. Yet... You are sovereign in my life. In other words, you know me and you know what is best. Friends, godly lament ends not in demands, not even in requests, but in trust. I'm asking this and yet God is good. God is holy. God is wise. We turn to him. Friends, if in your sorrows you are struggling to trust the Lord, if you're struggling to trust his good intentions towards you, if you are asking and he is saying no, or if he seems silent, or if he is making you wait, I would like this evening to direct your attention to the cross, where God's good intentions for you were permanently etched into this history of redemption. I love how Romans eight thirty two teaches us that the cross itself 
begs us to make bold requests, and yet it also teaches us to trust. And so I'll end with this verse as I often do. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Friends, don't let your sorrows have the last word. God loves you. And you can ask him to prove it again, but he very well may say, just look back at the cross. Father, teach us to trust you, but also teach us to ask with honesty. We thank you for the cross of Jesus Christ and let it be what defines our identity and your love for us. Help us trust you as we go. In your name, amen. You're dismissed, church. Go in peace.